raw opium, heroin, cocaine, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, uh, cannabis. There isn't much that I haven't tried because people like me, when you have this excruciating pain problem, are desperate, right? And I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that desperate. I want people to understand who are helping me medically that there are answers, that if they do the work and if they educate themselves, they too will find out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cannabis Law in Canada. I'm your host, Russell Bennett, a cannabis lawyer and author in Toronto. Today, I'm talking with Alison Murden, who is a retired law enforcement officer, a global drug law reform activist, and one of Canada's first medical cannabis exemptees, actually since 1994. And it's because Alison also lives with multiple sclerosis since she was a kid, and also has been suffering every day of her life with this terrible facial pain known as trigeminal neuralgia. So throughout the interview, she uses sound sometimes and tapping to alleviate the pain, um, and as well as consuming cannabis and magic mushrooms, which she's done for years. But we recorded this in her home in Burlington, Ontario, and it was very generous and uh, very brave of her to uh, share her story with us. So I hope you enjoy. Could you just walk me through your medical regime? Like, what do you do every day and what, what's in front of you right now? Maybe just wa bet. walk me through it. Take me on a tour. I'd love to. First and foremost, I have a company in Hamilton who actually, I do have to say this, has been helping me uh, with deliveries every week, free deliveries of medicine. And one of the things they give me is magic mushroom gummies. And this is how much I have left of the package. But I will tell you, that's helping. They also give me beautiful choice of magic mushrooms. Again, delivery through the mushroom cabinet in Hamilton. And I also, again, get incredible, incredibly delicious chocolate. So this particular one is almond chocolate. And each uh, bar is a total of 3,000 milligrams of magic mushrooms. So what they do with the bars, I think eight squares, eight to 10 squares, and you can microdose or, pardon me, macrodose as you see fit. And when you're, when you're going, what, what's happening with you? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm having lightning shoot through my left eye, just below my left eye. It actually circles the orbit of my left eye, this pain. It's called trigeminal neuralgia or tick dollaroo. And mine happens to be associated with multiple sclerosis. When you say it's associated with multiple sclerosis, so it, it, it came after you started having MS or when, when did it, when did it happen? When did it start uh, developing? That's actually a really good question because I was diagnosed, pardon me, at age 28, back to the age of under 10 years old with multiple sclerosis. So I knew all my life I was fighting things. But in my early 20s, before I was diagnosed, I started to have horrible flicks of pain in my face and like lightning, like I said. And my mother, who might have lost my father at that time very suddenly to a brain tumor, he was then and gone in two months. And my mother jumped up and said, we are going to find answers for you. And she took me everywhere, literally. So because of my mother, again, I found some of these things that are now working for me. What's your mom's name? Joyce Murden. Joyce. 94 years young. She's beautiful. Just moving to long-term care today, so. Oh, my God. Yes. Is that traumatic? Uh, you know what? Not as traumatic as we thought it was going to be. So, again, she's where I'm in Burlington, Ontario, Canada. My mother's moving to Waterloo, Canada, Waterloo, Ontario. So it's about 45 minutes from here, and my brother happens to live right up the road. And all of my uh, nieces and, or my niece and my nephews can certainly walk up and say hello and greet my mom now regularly. So that's good. It's exciting. It's a really good time. How often are you in touch with your mom? Every day. I talk to my mom three times a day at least. Wow. So, yeah, my mom and I, again, we're all, we're a really close family. And I was saying to somebody earlier that we like to joke around with my mother a lot. So I will call her in the morning and, you know, just 
tell her little jokes and things. And then every night we have a saying where I say sleep tight buttercup and she says, I'll try butterfly. <laughs> and then we both say, I love you. And she goes to bed. So <laughs> how many years have you been doing that? Oh my gosh. Well, my mother had a stroke over a decade ago and we've been doing it long before that since I've been young. Since I've been young, I've always had a really close relationship with my parents, as do my brother and sister. So when uh, when you were searching for answers uh, with your mom, what was that like? What was the process to find out what you had and what you were experiencing? Uh, definitely it was a trip because we went everywhere and then some to find answers. I was not uh, getting the answers that I needed or wanted to hear from medical doctors. Uh, when they diagnosed me with multiple sclerosis, they diagnosed me with primary progressive multiple sclerosis and told my family and Carrie that they would be spoon feeding me in a nursing home by the time I was 40 years old, if I was still alive. And I'm 59, just turned in January, nice. and I walk every day. I'm not always that good at it, <laughs> but I do get up and walk, and I have 13 really steep stairs that I go up and down daily as well. So I try to keep active, and again, I take a lot of vitamins and natural things to keep me better. I but, find the pharmaceuticals weighed me down. Okay, so I, I do want to get into the pharmaceuticals in a bit, and, and your experience of, of the the, the uh, conventional medicine journey you were on because I, I I need to know like what mm. what how you how you were starting to treat that but but I want I want you to go back further with me what was the first moment the first moment you can remember that you were experiencing something that other kids weren't experiencing and what was that like and just can you do you have a first memory um honestly, one of the blessings with having MS is that you lose a lot of your memory. Oh, really? Okay. Depending on where the plaque is in your brain. Yes. That's what doctors have told me. So I have a, ter a, a wonderful long-term memory from when I was a child. I can even remember my home family number in Winnipeg, family phone number, but things like that. Well, what I was your remember. family phone number? 837-7443. Where in Winnipeg were you living? I actually was born in Regina, Saskatchewan, and then we moved to Cinnamon Park area in Winnipeg, and I lived on Keatsway. Nice. Or no, I lived on Bedson in Keatsway, sorry. Okay. <laughs> right on the corner, yeah. And I was talking earlier, we used to have street parties. Ronald McDonald used to come because he lived on our street. We'd have music. <laughs> the Ronald McDonald? Yeah, and we're having a street party in September here in this area. So on our street, I'm actually organizing it. So nice. again, we know a lot of musicians and some really good friends of ours at Killing Time Band have said they would come. Oh, so I'm excited. Fantastic. As is the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, we, we yeah. should come by and uh, and see you then too. I would love that. September 24th, Sunday. Sounds good. <laughs> Everybody's welcome. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you remember uh, when you were diagnosed with MS and what 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 that was like? I remember when I was diagnosed with MS. Originally, they had diagnosed me with a number of other things, including colon, colorectal cancer and Huntington's chorea. So I was diagnosed with a lot of things before they actually came up with MS. And I was saying one of the things, Russell, is that with multiple sclerosis, there is no cure. So doctors won't openly tell you, oh, you have a disease that has no cure until they can prove it. And even now it's queried. So all those other diagnoses were just I false. don't have a definite. You don't have Huntington's? And no, they apparently not. No, apparently not. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but little did I know. I mean, I was just, as a child, I was, I was captain of the cheerleading team growing up. I modeled growing up. I did everything that I could do. I had a really active life, parties, music all the time. Music has always been a big part of my life. So nothing has changed that. Not um, even that silly pain in my face. Do you have pain anywhere else besides your your face? No, not really. The odd time, I have something called uh, the MS hug, which is apparently it's like that's what it's called. It's like a pain in your back, almost between your shoulder blades. It feels like somebody's hugging you so tight that you can't breathe sometimes. So that's one thing that I have that every now and then that bothers me. And then I've had surgeries. I broke my. Uh, left leg 
I broke my left ankle. I broke my left foot two or three times each of them. So those sorts of things, again, you know, right. every now and then they bother me. But I have lots of stuff to help me feel better. And I take a lot of vitamins too, Russell. Okay. And I've taken those for over 30 years. And those were a big part of my walking again. Because I went all around the world to find scientists and doctors who could help me with multiple sclerosis when I was young. Because I did not want MS. I didn't want it at all. And I, I wasn't even ready to accept the diagnosis at the time. I was ready to fight and give it everything I had. So that's what kept me going. How's the fight going? Still going great. Still going great. But you know what? Again, I'm just happy at 59 years old that I can walk these days because, again, they told my family and Gary that I've been with Gary, my partner, Gary Lynch, for 35 years. And he was with the doctors when they diagnosed me with my family decades ago when my father was alive. And now I look back at it and I think it's flown by so fast because of all the things that I've been doing, Russell. So I don't focus on me. I'm not poor me. I've never been that way. So I'm like, what about everybody else? If I'm not feeling well, then somebody else must not be feeling well. Let's do something about it. Let's fix that. Right. So what was the first, second, third attempt for you to work with mm. the conventional Western medicine, your doctors? What, what were the kinds of things they first prescribed you <coughs> to deal with? Excuse me. To deal with uh, MS? Oh, my goodness. Uh, oh, I can't even remember the original dilant and carbamazepine. Uh, and then, of course, I had the silly pain in my face, so they ended up giving me well, everything from Oxycontin, uh, morphine. I just still take thousands of milligrams of morphine a day, every day. Uh, I can't even think. I also, doctors also took me on a really wicked trip. There was a doctor that we found here in uh, Burlington, Ontario, Dr. Kaminar, when I was growing up. And Dr. Kaminar, bless his soul, uh, actually treated me with heroin and cocaine at the local hospital for a number of years I went there and had treatments wah, trying to give me some relief for this pain in my face. So How, how was heroin? A lot of fun, but <laughs> I was out before I knew it. So. And what about cocaine? Cocaine, I never stopped running. I think three days I was awake. <laughs> and then I said, not for me. <laughs> so... How did you come across cannabis or marijuana at the time? How did you come across that? Funny enough, again, I spend a lot of time with a lot of musicians. And I used to teach guitar when I was 16 years old in a store in Oakville called The High Note. And when I was there, a lot of the people that I was hanging around with and stuff on my breaks and even in the music store like to smoke. So we often would get together as 16 years old. I knew how much better it made me feel to the point where I didn't realize all my friends were watching me and I would go to parties over the years and I would have a specific friend named Kevin. Every time I saw him at a party, he would throw an ounce of pot in my lap and he'd say, get up and dance. Because we used to always get up and dance at the parties. And after the years went by, Russell, I wasn't getting up as much all the time because I didn't have things to smoke Ooh, to give me the energy to get up, right? Mm. But so, so, sorry, Cannabis gives you the energy to get it up? It sure does. It sure does. It shoots me out of my wheelchair. But only the strongest, highest THC. I actually went as far as California. There's a friend of mine. In, we have friends all around the world. But a friend of mine in California named Steve Tuck was a grower 30 years ago. And Steve had a strain that scared a lot of people when we were young because he called it heroin. But that strain called heroin was a mix of things. And he just, that happened to be the name that came out of it. But the heroin, he sent me the seeds from, I shouldn't be saying this. Anyway, I got seeds for it. <laughs> and before you knew it, my grower here in Canada, who actually had the seeds at the time, started growing it for me. And every time I smoked a wrestle, it shot me out of my wheelchair and I would dance for hours. Wow. And that strain was 35% THC. You don't right. see that anymore. No, no. But there is this race to grow high potency th THC as, as though that's the, 
the main event yeah, with cannabis. I see that a lot. I see that a lot. You know, everybody, again, funny enough, I came out to the media over 25 years ago. And when I first came out, there were two things that bothered me. One, that you're right. As soon as I mentioned what I used for cannabis, everybody all of a sudden thought that's the, you know, I want to get it that much too, that much THC. But also the pills I was using, Russell, which really confused me because I had a picture of bottles of pills, 32 different types of pills. And I would take three or four out of each bottle every day for 18 years. I couldn't even count how many pills I took in one day. And bottom line, that was why I decided after so many years of doctors that I'd had enough. I was like, now's the time for me to educate you. So all of a sudden I started to teach my doctors and I would say, cannabis again gives me energy, shoots me out of my wheelchair. And that is the truth. Secondly, magic mushrooms do the same thing. They give me the energy that I didn't, won't normally or don't normally, uh, not able to uh, access. And as soon as my brain gets triggered, all of a sudden I get up and I start cleaning. And then I've realized I've had a handful of magic mushrooms. You know, I take five grams every few hours. And my prescription is 150 grams a day of cannabis. And then a magic mushroom's 50 grams a day. So I'm macrodose. I don't microdose. I'm far different than anybody else in the country. I, 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 50 grams a day. 50 grams a day. Of, of magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms. And, and I mean, I think, isn't it uh, a regular dose like one gram? <laughs> <laughs> so the government says, Russ, but again, this is what I, when I started, whatever, 25 years ago with cannabis, I got my license in 1994. I was one of the first 20 cannabis patients in the country. When you say license, you, you mean like your exemption? You were, you yeah, were allowed my, to get- My first section 56, I got from the government. Sorry, you're right. Yeah. Section 56 from the government from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act yeah. to be able to consume, grow and carry cannabis. I was telling them then I was 28 grams a day and I wasn't even honest then. I was a lot more, but they were losing it at 28 grams a day. They were like, how could you have 28 grams of cannabis in a day? Right. I don't smoke all those all that cannabis. I use it in food. I make it in everything I can find. And then I eat it. And I also drink it in tea, just like magic mushrooms. So do you have any recipes for me? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like I, what, what, how, what's the best way to eat it? Uh, what are you talking about? Cannabis? Yeah. Oh, chocolate, I would say. Chocolate, <laughs> most definitely. I have a 3,000 milligram cannabis chocolate bar from a friend, again, whom I've never met. Wait a minute, you, you don't make chocolate? No, no, no. No, no I'm talking about you. Like, you, oh, you say, make Yeah, when, when you add it to food, like, what I, are you I adding it to? I haven't made it now. Uh, soups, we used to make soups, macaroni and cheese. You can add it to anything. Cannabis oil we would use. You just pour it on top? Cannabis oil, you mix it in with the food, and then you just make the food. Oh. It doesn't even really change the taste of the food. Okay. And that's what people need to understand. You can use, I would use cannabis oil as with my growers and every food item they made me. They made me everything from ice cream to soup to cookies to just general food. They would make casseroles, anything you would bake that they could add something to, they would put the oil in. Right. And so- you're medicating just by eating lunch. You better believe it. Okay. <laughs> so can can you, I, there's a, a bunch of stuff <clears throat> on, on the your table in front of you. Can you maybe take me through what's on the table and what you're using every day to- You bet. Today? You bet. First of all, these are, the, those are the medications I'm on now. Pardon me. Oh, uh, and those are ones that I really can't do without what, because uh, what are you what are you taking now? Uh, this one, oh, what is that? Oh, I haven't even scratched the name off it. Catorlac for the pain in my face, which is an anti-inflammatory. Catorlac uh, is also called something else, and I can't think of what it's called right now. Catorlac is a migraine medication, and that one I continuously lie on, rely on. Pantoprazole. Because of, again, uh, GERD issues from all the pills I take. Uh, I don't have all my pills in front of me. Do you need your glasses? Prochlorotherazine, no, but I'm missing my morphine. I have Dilaudid I take. I take a lot of Dilaudid every day. And so what I try to do, Russ, is not take those as often. Right. 
And then I try to take other edibles instead that have my, um, my medicine in them. So as example, ooh, a 3,000 uh, milligram chocolate bar that I started to say, a friend of mine that I haven't met named Big Ken from First Nations has given me an open account to get everything from flour to edibles to incredibly awesome vapor pens on back. Right. So they've been very generous. And again, that's something they've given me out of the kindness of their heart. They have an open, uh, uh, I have an open thing there to buy anything whenever I need it. Pardon right. me. Why? And because they, they have different products than they do i haven't tried everything ocs stores is that what you mean it's like is it a different it's not is it an unlicensed store is that what you're talking about no no this is for the mississauga said the credit the medicine okay. wheel right so and big ken owns 21 stores i see so what they do is they just again in the government stores i think i've told you and people have to be aware in the ocs stores the ontario cannabis stores they're mandated to put in pesticides and herbicides etc Things that are grown in First Nations in the Six Nations area that I go to, the indigenous people of Canada, don't do that. So these are the things, again, that I'm trying to teach people the difference of the red market as opposed to the black market or the street market or the gray market. Right. You know, I try to, I try honestly every day to get people to understand more so about the red market and how the indigenous people look at these plants because they have a totally different take on it. What's the take? It's their medicine. And they've grown up knowing that all their lives. They've known these things. They don't question anything. It's not, uh, you're not ostracized or stigmatized when you're in public consuming some of these products. You know, that's the difference. You know, I feel very welcomed by people. Again, I have indigenous in my family and my cousin I was saying earlier, Mike Merton, who uh, worked for the Thirsty Traveler here in Canada, met his wife uh, on one of the reserves in Regina and Saskatchewan. I'm not sure if it's in Regina, but Saskatchewan. And they have twins now. And so we have Indigenous. And my cousin's wife, her mother, was one of the first residential school survivors in Canada. So these are the things that, again, are history in the Merton family and my family. So I want people to know, you know, again, this has been an absolute journey. Everything that I've done that I've been doing is my is a journey. And again, I'm looking forward to what's next. In Nebraska, in the United States, there's a, um, a former governor, uh, Governor Ricketts, right. who was uh, saying last year, two years ago now, that uh, if you legalize, if you legalize cannabis, you'll kill your kids. What do you think about that? Ridiculous. Why? Absolutely ridiculous. Nobody has ever died from cannabis, not from the consumption. Again, my partner Gary Lynch says often this one story about how they had to give over 50,000 cigarettes to a chimp to see if it would overdose, and it still didn't happen. <laughs> so, I mean, seriously, people have to know these things. Cannabis, I again have spoken as a corrections officer, and as now one of the first medical cannabis patients in Canada, I speak everywhere. And I was at a licensed producer facility a couple of years ago, and the crowd, I mean, it was a full room, and I was sitting at the front, pardon me, at the poet, at the panel to speak. And uh, I looked to my left and I was saying this earlier that on the ground, on the, this overhead, I uh, had shown on the bay on the wall ahead of us and three quarters of it, you could see, the people in the room could see. It was the bottom corner that was blocked out and it was the lethal dose level to everything, every drug, every substance known to, you know, man, I guess. And it ended up that heroin was at the top Cannabis was three quarters of the way down because cannabis, again, I don't even know why I was there. It has no lethal dose level. But at the very bottom, my friend, was magic mushrooms. And nobody in the room could see that. But people, again, like me on the panel who were looking to the left and could see it. And right around the calves of the ankles of the person who was speaking. Right. That was absolutely, I could not believe the government did that. That was a government-run event that I was at. 
And they paid me $500 to speak for that event. Hmm. And I remember them saying to me, tell the truth. And I almost did. I almost said magic mushrooms is also on this. But I didn't at that time because cannabis was the topic. Um, how are you an activist? How did you start with activism, first of all? And then how has it evolved for you? Well, the first time I actually came out to the media was to the Toronto Star in 19, no, maybe it was 1999, 2000, I'm not sure. This was a picture a photographer took of me decades ago when I was taking 32 pills a day, 2,000 milligrams of morphine a day, heroin and cocaine, all doctor prescribed. And I couldn't get out of bed and I couldn't understand why people wanted someone like me, as young as I was at the time, to be on a regime of that much medication. I didn't understand that. So that's what started my fight, Russell. I went to my doctors and I said, no more, no more. I've been smoking cannabis off and on since I was 16. And I told you the story, a friend threw an ounce of pot in my lap at every party I went to that this friend and I were invited to. And Kevin literally changed my life with cannabis, giving it away for free. So that's what also started me because my friend Kevin was so generous. I thought, I'm going to do the same thing and pay it forward. So again, this 32 pills a day put me after five days without cannabis and only those pills put me in this position where all of a sudden I was going out for lunch with my mom 15 minutes and I told her, you be here. And she came here. And 15 minutes later, this is exactly how she found me. I was passed right out of my bed from all the medication that I have to take. And my mom had enough. She said, that's enough. I'm phoning the Global Mail. And this made it in the Global Mail in 2004. One-time activist too tired to fight. Boy, did that get me angry. How old are you there? 2004, now you're making me think. I was born in 1964, so if you can figure it out, I'd... <laughs> 40, I think. <laughs> you're 40. 40, yeah. And, so. and why did it make you angry? Because of the heading. I wasn't aware that my mom had done this article with the Globe Mail and a fellow named Graham Smith at the time. I didn't know that he was in my room. I didn't know anything about it. I was sleeping the whole time. So my mom, I was explaining, came in to my room and she wondered, she was calling me from the door, you know, Allison, let's go for lunch. And all of a sudden came upstairs and this is how she found me. And that's when I said to her, I can't do this anymore. I was so mad at my mother for, you know, telling the media that this is how I lived. I didn't want anybody to know my, that this was my life. My mother, Russell, was one of the very first people who told me to tell people I was actually suffering. I would never use that word growing up, never. And my mom said, if you don't tell them you're suffering, how are they going to know? How, how do you think um, this affected your mom? Oh, I know it did. My father, again, God rest his soul, uh, was diagnosed with a brain tumor, Derek Courtney Murden and gone in two months around the time that I was having all this trouble. I'd had trouble growing up a lot, you know, but around this time. Were you, were you close my, with your dad? Very close. I was, my sister and I are both daddy's girls, right? So it affected us severely, really greatly. But it ended up that my mom is uh, a Pisces and took over the role of caregiver and said, Enough is enough. And as I said, she phoned the Globe and Mail that day and said she was all, the article is all my mom speaking. And my mom saying, my daughter's not going to live like this. The country's going to know. The world will know. So I thank my mom. And that's basically what started my activism. My big fight was that I didn't want people to think that I was a one-time activist or a one-trick pony. And that I was also too tired to fight because I'm not too tired to fight. What I can you, fight sitting down. So what 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 what, <laughs> <laughs> what was the fight back then? I mean, obviously it wasn't legalized till 2018, right? We or, had or, a fight but, on our hands. So uh, describe some of the fight for me. What was uh, where, where, where was some of the fight for you? 
I met with Health Canada, with the lawyers. We lobbied the government. There were years of lobbying. It never stopped. We went all the way, Justin Trudeau, when he took over the power of the country. We literally had people in Ottawa lobbying the heck out of Justin Trudeau at the time because I spoke for a law enforcement agency in the U.S. called LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And what, <laughs> actually, originally, I'll tell you this story. Jack Cole, one of the five founding members, uh, was coming up the streets of Ottawa and heard my voice booming <laughs> because we had an activist or we had a protest set up, pardon me, on Parliament Hill. And we were protesting the fact that cannabis was illegal. And there were people like David Malmo Levine and myself and Boris St. Maurice. There were some well-known people back then who had come out. Boris was from Montreal and he had come over and David Malmo Levine came from British Columbia. So there were Mark Emery. There were a lot of us for these protests for many, many years. But the government never took us seriously. Hmm. And that's why, again, I pushed it as a patient because I thought this is absolutely ridiculous. This isn't hurting anybody. And I was going to parties all the time and people were smoking and laughing. And then I was watching other parties that I didn't go to, but I'd see or hear about and people getting drunk and causing fistfights and stuff. And I'd be like, nah, not my party. <laughs> you know, I'd be like chilling over here with the music and having a great time on my own. So, but that again is what started and spurred everything in me. And, and so now that it's legal, what's your, is there anything to fight about? You bet. Fight is not done. And as I started with LEAP, I spoke for LEAP for 12 years, this law enforcement agency, as I said, in the U.S. And I had to leave them, sadly enough, in 2016 because I was getting too busy on my own, just doing my own thing as an activist. Because my fight, Russell, wasn't just about cannabis and never has been. My fight has always been about all drugs. From the day I came out to the media, I wanted all drugs legalized, regulated, off the streets, out of the hands of our children, and away from the criminals once and for all. And that I will never stop fighting for. Do you think you can achieve complete drug legalization? I sure will. We will. Again, as, as I was saying, an activist named Jim Wakeford, an AIDS patient from uh, originally from Toronto and now from out west from B.C., Bottom line, when I met Jim, I was at a protest, my very first protest in Toronto. I decided I would go out because I was an activist all of a sudden. Some media told me <laughs> I didn't even label myself an activist. Media actually had to tell me, oh, you're a really busy activist. <laughs> so I went into this protest, um, uh, pardon me, at Queen's Park in Toronto. And Jim Wakeford was sitting at the top of this really steep hill where there now is a, a statue uh, of a man on a horse. I can't even think right now who it is. But anyway, bottom line, Jim was on this hill on a lawn chair by himself and everybody was around him and Jim was looking like a king. The sun was shining. He had been in the media for a number of months fighting as an activist himself because, again, his health, he was saying, was more important than these silly little issues of things being illegal that we needed. So I went up to Jim and I climbed up this hill and I still don't know how I got up this hill, but I climbed up this hill and I said, hey, Jim, and I stuck out my hand. I said, my name's Allison Merton. I said, you don't have to worry. I said, we're gonna do this together. He looked at me and he said, kid, this will be the loneliest road you ever go down. I looked back at him and I said, that's why I'm gonna invite all my friends. <laughs> so I've never stopped. And literally everybody's jumped on board because we all know this doesn't make sense. Mm. Who are some of uh, your friends that you've been, that you've been uh, fighting with over the past few decades? Oh, I, Jody and Mark Emery, big part of things. Jody is a, just a sweetheart and she's a good friend, uh, who, especially in this community. Mm -hmm. uh, Rosie Robotham, again, big CBC reporter. And he also spent 20 years in jail as Canada's longest serving cannabis prisoner. And I bothered him continuously till he was my friend. <laughs> so... <laughs> there are a lot of people I can't even think of ever. There's so many, Russell. I know so many people. I wish I was better with names as I, you know, as I go through these things. But I can't even really pull out names other than the few I mentioned. You know, there's this um, reluctance on doctors and, and uh, on the Food and Drug Administration 
to give cannabis the medicine, quote unquote, status yes. and, and, and psilocybin as well with mushrooms. And, yes. and so because there's not, they always say there's not enough studies. And, <laughs> you know, so what do you say to that? You're using it as medicine, but they keep saying, well, it's not medicine. So, you know, what is it and where and how, how will they ever come over? And what's your, where's your, your vision for all of this coming together? I know it's going to happen as soon as the country and the world realizes that, A, all you need to do is legalize things like this. Then we have control and then we can study them all we want. And that's all we've asked is to legalize and regulate all of these substances because as patients, we need them studied and we need to find out why we're feeling better. So I'm all for that 100%, but I'm all for also full legalization of all drugs, every single drug, the heart of the drug, the more it needs to, and has to be off the street and away from our children. Bottom line. How do you answer parents' complaints and concerns about hard drugs being legalized? And won't, won't, won't that be sold in every, you know, like a, a, of hard drug stores or? You bet. Well, isn't that a fear? No, not at all. You know why? As soon as hard drugs are legalized, like in BC, nobody's going to go out and buy them. Are you going to try heroin just because it's legal? Are you going to try things like cocaine? Maybe a little bit. There might be an odd time that you would try those substances. But don't you think it's better in a legal environment where they can actually do things properly and make sure that harm is reduced? That's what I'm fighting for, Russell. So you're, ta you're talking about quality control. You better believe it. Right. I'm curious about your relationship to your growers, mm -hmm. to your grower, to your growers. I mean, how how does um, how do you develop that? How how uh, how how has it changed over the course of your relationship? Um, because you you don't grow cannabis yourself. You don't grow mushrooms yourself. I don't even have growers anymore, Russell. I'm not legal. I haven't been legal for cannabis in Canada for probably five years. Why not? Because I don't care anymore. Aren't you? I'm to the point where the government knows me so well. I'm tired of it. I don't jump through hoops for the government at all. Aren't you I don't worried think about? Anybody should. Aren't you worried about getting arrested and going to jail? So what are they going to do? What are they going to do? I, I'm going to jail as a sick person because I'm feeling better. I know for a fact my lawyers, Paul Lewin and Jack Lloyd, would step up in a second and say, not going to happen. Bottom line again, Russell, I want people to know they have this right. And yes, they need to be legal as a patient. But I personally am past that because, again, I, oh, I just got denied. I originally had a Section 56, as I said, control from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act, pardon me, in Canada to be able to consume, grow, and possess cannabis. That ran out, and I couldn't go under the new umbrella of the government rules with medical because of 150 grams a day, and the government wouldn't allow that. So that's too much, the government says. And that's actually what's making me better and getting me up and walking again. And what the government doesn't realize is that there are people like me in this country who require that much medication or that much of certain medicines and substances. And I've always called cannabis medicine because that's what it is for me. Just like magic mushrooms medicine. Soon as I take magic mushrooms, which are again right here, soon as I take those, I have no pain in my face. In six minutes, my partner's Gary, Gary has timed me. Ma. I don't know why I didn't do this earlier, but six minutes for a handful of magic mushrooms and then no pain if it's the right strain of mushrooms. And again, eyes crossed. Six minutes from now, I should be feeling better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start timing. Yes, please do. Okay. Gary, my partner, is sat across me and he has timed every single one. <laughs> and Gary is neurotic about things like that. <laughs> okay. I started, I started the stopwatch right now. Beautiful. Um. Okay, so you you want you want to have all drugs legalized, and 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 yet we've already legalized cannabis, but you can't find the cannabis that you need in the legalized stores. So legalization in that respect is a failure, is it not? It is for me. Yeah, and so for tell a me. lot of patients. So so what what do you need? What well, do you need the government to to give you to do? I need the amounts that I need that are authorized by my doctors 
and I don't need any uh, government officials to interrupt or even try to stop that. That's my problem, Russell. My doctors, again, I've been with my doctors since I've been young, all of them. And again, I have a history of so many flipping pills. Everything in the pharmacopoeia, the book, the blue book that sits on your doctor's desk, every single medication in there that was actually prescribed for multiple sclerosis or for the violent pain I have in my face 24 hours a day, I tried. And bottom line, it wasn't until I smoked my first cannabis cigarette. And that was again when I was young and then, I don't even remember what Gary said then, but it was immediate. And I remember, as I mentioned, the strain heroina. I was with Rosie Robotham and his wife, Gary and I were out. And we were at a big event for Halloween in Toronto at a church. And everybody was all dressed up and everything. And we were overlooking a balcony. We were in a balcony overlooking what well, was the second floor. And we were overlooking the downstairs, the dance where the dance floor was. And I had actually wanted to dance. I'm a very, I'm a big dancer, or was when I could get up. So uh, Rosie's friend, I didn't know this at the time, was a prince from Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and I didn't know that. He just introduced me as I uh, by his first name. So I, again, hit it off with his friend. Next thing you know, we're dancing. We're dancing for hours. But it was only because of that strain, heroina that I spoke to you about. I was out of my wheelchair and Gary and Rosie, I didn't know this, were talking at the table about the fact that I could dance as long as I was dancing and stay in my feet that long just from cannabis. One more thing. When I was young, Russell, I first, again, I started to investigate. I investigate everything. I want to find out why things work for me. So I went to this website, from GW Pharmaceuticals. And I will tell you this, they had on their website exactly these words, and I have this upstairs, I printed off the page, that for multiple sclerosis, cannabis halts the progression of MS. And those are the exact words. So I printed off that page decades ago. The next day I went back, gone. So GW Pharmaceuticals, Jeffrey Guy, was a man that I was introduced to at the first or first cannabis um, expo, I guess you would call it, in Canada in 1999 in Cornwall. I had actually begged everybody I knew, and Mark Emery came to my aid and gave me, through his assistant, assistant Michelle Rainey, uh, I got an envelope in the mail one day with red lips all over the envelope. I wish I had kept that because Michelle's no longer with us. But anyway, 10 $100 bills in the envelope. And it was for me to take my mother to this expo in Cornwall, Ontario. And what I did, I went into this expo and I was in a wheelchair most of the time then. So I went into this expo in a wheelchair and doctors and scientists, we were the only lay people who were invited. And we were invited by a doctor named Dr. Ethan Russo from the U.S., who is a neurologist and also specializes in MS and, again, specializes in trigeminal neuralgia, the violent pain I have in my face. And Gary found him on the Internet when we were young on, in a chat room in England. Dr. Russo became a really good friend of ours and ended up again, inviting me to this conference in Cornwall, Ontario, again, as the only lay people, my mom and myself. So, and Gary was working at the time. So my mom and I went for this three-day weekend and we ended up meeting people from all around the world who were specialists in cannabis. Everybody from Raphael Mechelom, who's now gone, God rest his soul. Rafi put his arm around my mom and kept it there all dinner. <laughs> when we sat, we had meals together all the time. But Mark Ware from Montreal, a big doctor in Montreal as well. There were a number of government officials from Health Canada. We were all at the same table. We were all talking. But I had actually gone into this conference originally, uh, and it was in an um, auditorium, I guess, with a stage. There was a big stairway, a stair going down, staircase going down to the stage or down the area with the seats all around. It was full, and I decided after listening to these two doctors, my mother was with me, and they were from the U.S., and they were saying how much cancer caused head and neck cancer, or how much cannabis caused head and neck cancer. 
And I was sitting in my wheelchair at the top of this auditorium and I thought, I am not going to have this. So I got up out of my wheelchair and I stormed down those stairs to the microphone because they had microphones set up. And I said to them, I went to the microphone and I said, not acceptable. My mother's in the audience and she's hearing this. And that's not true. I said, you should be ashamed of yourselves for the information you're giving out here. So I spoke and I said a few things at that conference. A man named Fred Gardner and Gardner ended up putting in, in his paper, uh, I can't remember what it is, from California. And Fred to this day is still an activist. He was a big journalist at the time, big reporter. And Fred wrote about me doing walking down these steps and saying what I said, which I thought was funny because the whole conference, again, was about cannabis. And people like me should have been there anyway, so I'm glad I was because there were a lot of untruths being said. Hmm. Uh, let's go back to LEAP. Mm-hmm. So Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, it's uh, an organization out of the States, but also in Canada too, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, it's called Law Enforcement Law Enforcement Action Partnership now. They changed the name when I left in 2016 to the new name. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and yes. It's law enforcement officials mm-hmm. who see that prohibition is wrong. Not working. Right. Um, how, how did they come to see the light? How did you come to see the light instead of all the other law enforcement officials who, who have not yet seen the light, so to speak? Well, funny enough, my particular story, when I was young, I was a corrections officer for years, and I would stand up in court and say, because they'd always have young offenders with me, I was working with young offenders, and every young offender I had was being, you know, screamed at by the judge for getting involved in drugs, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, excuse me, but he's a he's a victim of circumstance. Drugs are a health issue and do not belong in a court of law, and bang, down would go the gavel, and all the court officers and the police officers would be chuckling and thumbing up and peace honey and way to go you know (laughs) but every single time I went to court five days a week as a rule and every single time I was in court and had somebody for drugs I would say exactly that drugs are health issue and do not belong in a court of law at all period so why haven't every other every other law enforcement officer in 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 North America see the same way well what's what's the difference between you and them You know what? It's a stigma again. And we're ostracized because of that stigma. So again, people look at us and go, wow, we can't believe you're so, you know, you're brave. You're able to talk like that. They whisper when I'm with them. They'll say it, you know, under their under their breath. But they have a badge on and it's really hard to work against that badge. Right. They're trying to uphold the law and they're trying to do what's right. So apparently they're told that drugs are a problem. As you see, every single drug bust, I used to, Bonnie Crombie, the uh, mayor of Mississauga, I actually wrote to her recently, within the year I know about this issue, but it upsets me because Leap, again, there's so many people in Leap. Neil Franklin, who was one of my bosses in Leap, and Jack Cole and Peter Christ, all of these people instilled in me how wrong it was to arrest people for drugs. Right. So again, when I was first starting, all of these issues came into play, but I was a patient. And so I had a little different turn on things. And that's why Jack Cole wanted me to speak for Leap, because I was coming out publicly about, again, how all drugs, how none of these things, uh, you know, I'm not saying people should do drugs. I'm not an advocate for all drugs. Please don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is the harder the drug is, the more it needs to be legalized and regulated. So, and if that's the case, it needs to be in the control and in the hands of somebody who can do it properly and safely. Again, it's all about safety, right? So these issues, again, were huge to me. And again, a huge issue with LEAP. I don't know why, honestly, other law enforcement officers look at LEAP and think like, wow, look at them. They're so brave they can do it. But the thing is, there are people that are wearing badges and there are people still on the force, forces working. Some of LEAP members aren't just uh, police officers, they're corrections officers, they're uh, probations officers, they're lawyers. There are a lot of legal, it's all law enforcement in general under that general umbrella. And that's why, again, Jack 
uh, Cole years ago said, call yourself a retired law enforcement activist, right? Because that's what I am. I'm retired law enforcement. And I retired from corrections. And Jack Cole made it very important, made a very important comment to me. And I'm glad now that I've done so much media. But Jack Cole told me not to say that I'm an ex-police officer, an ex-corrections officer, but that I retired. So those are apparently two different things. On your Twitter feed, Allison, um, and by the way, we're... uh... I have Time no is, pain. We're, we're at 11 minutes. I have no pain. I was just going to say that. Yeah, the 11 minutes of no pain. <laughs> no pain. Yeah. No pain. How how many how many mushrooms were in that handful, do you think? There are five grams in this jar, and I probably took half of them. So I might need more, but I'm trying to stretch them too, Russell. So I drink a five-gram tea. This is five grams of magic mushrooms in a tea. And I just happen to drink vitamin water when I'm not not drinking tea. But anyway, in the vitamin water. And then again, I eat all the mushrooms right after. And I have a fabulous day. Nice. Nice. <laughs> well, this, uh, this, I'm so glad you have no more pain. That's, that's like fantastic. Right now, my friend. <laughs> how, how long does it last usually? Uh, I found one strain of magic mushrooms called Blue Cambodian. A friend of mine, I'll tell you this story. A friend of mine, I was overseeing, and he's a medical cannabis patient like I am. He lives in Fort Erie, and his name is Russ, and he's such a sweetheart. Russ, we were over visiting Russ and Lynn, his wife, and I had a really bad day, just like I'm having today. Couldn't catch this pain at all. Before I knew that, Russ said, hey, I know, because we were trying all these different strains of cannabis and nothing was helping me. Russ said, I have magic mushrooms. And he goes, and I have a blue Cambodian mushroom, a five gram mushroom. He goes, do you want to try that? I was like, give it to me. (laughs) So before I knew it, I ate the whole five gram mushroom. Gary, Lynn, and Russ sat and stared at me for about 10 minutes. And they said they could not believe the peace that came over my face. Less than 10 minutes, I had no pain, and I'd been excruciating pain for hours at that point, just like today. Can you compare that with the pharmaceutical medicine, please? Sure can. I throw up, I pass out, and then when I wake up, I still have pain. On your Twitter feed, you have a post of your family name and your crest. Yes. From 1467. You bet. Which uh, looks like it's an eagle's head with uh, wings and a lion's body. (laughs) Yes. And the description says, Murden stands for creativity, passion, and strength. Whoever bears this name comes from a noble line. Those with the name Murden are known for their endless loyalty. Who are you loyal to? Everybody, literally, Russell, the second I meet you, I'm loyal. You're loyal to me. I tend to do that a lot. I tend to, uh, sometimes I take the time to feel people out. Sometimes I get a good vibe the second I meet them. I'm pretty loyal to everybody. What about your, what about, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I'm especially loyal to my spouse, Gary. (laughs) He does everything for me, Russell. I could not have even been here this long without him. He's been so good to me. Tell tell me about Gary and and how he's helping you. He's an incredible man. He does everything. I, I couldn't even begin to tell you what he does for me. He's chivalrous. He's caring. He's compassionate. He has love for me that... I would never be able to equal. Uh, I think with Gary, it's more of a, it just was meant to be. I know he's my soulmate. We've been together 35 years and I knew I didn't have to marry him. He proposed to me decades ago when we were younger. And I knew then I didn't have to marry him to make him realize that I felt the way I did. But I will tell you a little story about Gary's last name. Gary Lynch met my mother when I first started dating him 35 years ago. My mother said, isn't that funny? Did I ever tell you who you were named after? And I said, no. And she said, my best friend, Allison from Scotland. And I said, oh, nice, right? She said, yeah, Allison Lynch. Gary's last name is Lynch. So I completed my circle as far as the universe is concerned. And I'm totally at peace with everything. I'm so, I couldn't be happier every day of my life because of Gary. 
would you do if he wasn't here anymore? I'd still go on. I'd still go on. But I think Gary, again, is my rock. You know, you always have, I think, somebody that you kind of turn to one person that you sort of, you know, you know you can trust and do everything with. And Gary's that person for me. So if Gary wasn't here, I would go on. I'm like my mother. She, I lost my father by the time I was 30. You know, I wasn't even 30 years old and I lost my father just turning 30. And my mother uh, went on one date and I remember she was in the media with me and this was funny and that, that she was dating, had a date with a dentist in Oakville. She lives in Oakville and she had this date and she couldn't stop talking about me and the cannabis. And the man said, I never want to see you again, basically. <laughs> so my mom never dated anybody else, but that's, that was a good lesson for me because my mom's been by herself for 30 years. So, and if she can do it, I can do it. Can you tell me a bit about what it was like with your mom um, when you, because you said you had been diagnosed back to 10, but in your 20s. So under the age of 10, under the age of 10. So you've been living with MS for over a decade before you actually understood what it was. And your mom was she, she was obviously your uh, champion. You better believe your protector. It. What, what what did what were the kinds of things that she did for you along that along that journey? My mom is an amazing person, ninety four years young, as I said, and she at one point I will start here uh, when I was having trouble. She helped me uh, find a scientist named Paul Beatty. In, who was living in Oakville at the time, and Paul Beatty was talking about something called Evening Primrose Oil, a brand called Ephemal. So my mom had said she'd seen him on the David Suzuki Nature of Things show, and she wanted him to, apparently he was saying that this would help MS, this, these products that he was selling. So it ended up that Paul Beatty, I spoke a number of years later with at his events because his products ended up helping me so much that they too got me up and walking again. So it wasn't just the cannabis, it was a combination of everything I'm doing. And I take mm, over 30 vitamins and fatty acids, antioxidants, et cetera, every day of my life. And I know when I take them that it makes me feel better. So, and those things, again, that's just food. It's nutraceuticals, right? So it's vitamins and things, nutraceuticals. So, and I take a lot of pharmaceuticals, which I call pharmaceuticals. <laughs> but honestly, again, to each their own, I am again a little more natural than most. And that's why I prefer natural things like vitamins, antioxidants, fatty acids, and cannabis and mushrooms. <laughs> what's what's the, the line for you between um, being addicted to something and it being a medicine for you. Are you, are, in other words, are you addicted to anything? My doctors told me years ago, my neurologist made it very clear to me when I was on this mission of telling people about these substances that I was taking and the pills. And he said to me, you cannot be addicted to a substance if you require it. So I take what I require, and that's all I take. I don't know if that's equivalent to addiction because I'm not I'm not uh, needing the medicine. Like, I don't take it all the time if I don't need it. You know what I mean? I can sit there with all these bottles of pills blah, blah, for four or five hours because I've taken some, and some of them I can only take every six hours. So, and that happens to be like my morphine. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble again. I see your pain is back, yeah. Stupid. It didn't last very long. No, that's right. what I'm asking. That's what I'm saying. And it totally dependent on the strain, Russell. Right. So, and again, I've, this is a new strain for me. Blue meanies. Uh, but but it, but because you're you're ingesting them, doesn't it take a while to go from your stomach into your bloodstream and then have the effect? Like it maybe is it just is it will come on later? Like is that possible? You would think. I really am not sure. Okay. Honestly, again, Gary's timed it, and I was six minutes on almost every single time with this one strain that I had. So, and literally, that's why I'm switching strains right now. 
and it's a little more difficult to get relief. But I'm not giving up, Russell. I'm not giving up. I know that psilocybin does work for me. Psilocybin, again, has something in it called triptans. Is it triptans? Triptans. And triptans are in every migraine medication in North America. So I don't want those pills. I want psilocybin and mushrooms because they're better for me, right? Especially at the amounts I take. So. All right. So, I mean, you have Health Canada saying... um what the what what's a medicine and what's not a medicine yes so if you if you had health canada all the people from health canada in a room what would you say to them so that they could understand you where you're coming from your life your pain solutions you've discovered what would you say to health canada all the people there you know what i'd say do your homework I said, do your homework. People like me are not anecdotal. We're reality. And if it's helping people like us, then there's something you need to look into. Right now, I actually am very upset because Health Canada knows that I was the first authorized patient in the world for magic mushrooms or psilocybin for pain in April of 2017. And all Health Canada and the government of Canada has done since then, it's talk about anxiety and depression, how microdosing helps, which is amazing. I think that's great. Bruce Tobin, the man who started that fight from the West Coast and here in Canada and BC, Bruce Tobin phoned me and said, hey, Allison, why don't we both talk about magic mushrooms and how much they help and we'll take them down and we'll teach the world together. And his was for end of life care for people who are dying he was working with. And I said to Bruce, you know what? I can wait. Your people are much more important. But now it's been, what did I say, 2017, six years, and I'm still suffering. And I'm not by any means saying that people like me are more important. But what I'm saying is, why don't we all try to figure out everything at once, right? Why don't you have doctors studying this and doctors studying that and finding out why... I used magic mushrooms over 30 years, for over 30 years through my neurologist. I just couldn't tell anybody when I was out fighting for cannabis because they were not legal. So now that I'm actually finding relief, I'm, I've upped my dose of magic mushrooms and accidentally, as I said earlier, ate a five gram blue Cambodia mushroom. I had relief for six hours that day. So I know that certain strains work for me. And again, I have this 24 hours a day if I don't do things like that. Uh, I read on your website that your lawyer, uh, Paul Lewin, um, applied for an exemption for you for, for in 2019. Yes. So what, what's happened with that exemption for, uh, for psilocybin? Well, after 601 days, on May 27th, I was denied the right to use psilocybin as medicine here in Canada. No explanation other than uh, they felt that maybe I should go in studies and tell my doctor about some trials that were available. And the reason I don't go in trials at all is because I can't go without. I can't be one of those participants who doesn't have the substance to feel better. So my doctors told me decades ago, again, trials won't work for me. So why doesn't Health Canada understand that? After 601 days, they said no. So they, they had that? they had your application for six hundred and one days. They sure did. Why do you think they through took my so lawyers? Long? Why do you think they took so long? <laughs> you know what? Again, I will guarantee it's because of the way I speak out. I will guarantee you. What do you mean? I have been so vocal everywhere, Russell, for thirty-five years about these issues. I will not stop. That's again why I spoke for Leap. I know people around the world. I still have people around the world contacting me and telling me things. Good job, way to go. You know, you tell them, and things that people won't talk about as a patient. I can get away with, right? Because I've tried everything from raw opium. I had a doctor from Montreal send me raw opium for almost five years. Weekly, I would get it in the mail, a chunk of raw opium. Gary would roll it into little snakes and put it in my cannabis cigarettes. I would smoke half a cannabis cigarette, no pain. And those are the things, raw opium, heroin, cocaine, psilocybin, magic mushrooms. 
uh, cannabis. There isn't much that I haven't tried because people like me, when you have this excruciating pain problem, are desperate, right? And I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be that desperate. I want people to understand who are helping me medically that there are answers, that if they do the work and if they educate themselves, they too will find out. Is there anything, if you went back, well, okay, let's imagine something for a second. <laughs> say, say you have your 24-year-old self sitting beside you. Is there anything you would tell her? Right yeah, now? don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. That's the first thing I'd say. Don't give up. Never, ever give up. Never. Has there, any, has there been a time in your life where you have given up? No, not really. No. As I said, uh, all my life, my mom's a very strong mother. My father, Nufi, was a very strong business, you know. I mean, I w- we were raised that way not to give up, right? My dad, again, is a Merton, as you read. So he is, he has all those beautiful traits. And one of 13 children, my father was. My mother, one of five. And I have none. <laughs> no, that's a lie. I have way more than my mom and dad ever had. I have the world as my children. The world's children are my children. Did I you, said that for years. Did you, did you ever want to have your own kids? I did. Gary and I wanted to have kids 35 years ago. We wanted to try. And doctors, again, didn't give me hope. They told Gary that if I was going to have children, that I'd be in a wheelchair permanently. If, again, I was even able to take care of them. And we find out now that's not necessarily the case. Why would they say you'd be in a wheelchair? Because I have primary progressive MS and having a child is very traumatic on the body of somebody with multiple sclerosis. They're fine and they never feel better while they're pregnant. And then right right afterwards, they tank. So, and I've again seen that many times. My cousin had MS and she's no longer with us. So, and she had the same form of MS that I have, right? And again, doctors gave me till I was 40 and I'm 59. So that's why I said, never give up. Did she do the same regimen as you did with cannabis and psilocybin? No, no. And that's the thing though. A lot of people are really frightened, I think, to go that route. And I, again, never was, Russell, because again, I had so many different pills. I thought, what the heck else, you know, what could harm me more than all the pills I was taking for those 18 years I took that medication, 32 pills a day, 2,000 milligrams of morphine a day, heroin and cocaine for 18 years. And then finally I said, I'm done. And that's when I started to get up and walk and realize because of cannabis and magic mushrooms and things that I was using, I was having better quality of life. So, and I got to eliminate most of my pills. So, I'm proud. Nice. Thanks, Allison. You're welcome, Russell. It's been amazing. Thank you. It was completely my pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cannabis Law in Canada. As you may guess, this interview is not legal advice. And if you need legal advice, please contact a lawyer. We're always working on making this the best podcast for our listeners. So if you have suggestions for an interview or ideas for episodes please contact us at CannabisLaw.ca.